0: Great singing, thank you, thank you to Joel and Becca for leading us. This morning I'd like you to take your notebook, if you brought your notebook along, and also your Bible, let's open them both up. Take your notebook open to the last page you took notes, and take your Bible and open that with me, if you would please, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is right exactly after Mark 7. And if you can't find Mark 7, we'll help. But let's take a minute to get caught up before we jump in with both feet into Mark chapter 8. We are now in our eighth week of working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, each Sunday morning, those of you who have been here understand this, each Sunday morning we look at a particular paragraph from each chapter. And then what we've done in the last seven weeks, we've come up with chapter titles to help us identify at least something from that paragraph, something that we can sort of a hook, we can hang hang on to as we go back and try and walk our way through the Gospel of Mark. So each Sunday morning, we have looked at a particular paragraph from each chapter, but outside of church, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I've encouraged you, at least I hope I've encouraged you, to read the entire chapter at home during the week, not necessarily on Sunday morning. And we trust that the same God who speaks to us on Sunday morning will speak to you on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever it is you choose to read through the next chapter. So before we look at our one paragraph from Mark chapter 8, I'm going to take a few minutes and go back and remind us some of what we have read and studied on Sunday morning, but also some of what you've read about during the week while you're keeping up with the readings at home. I think I've got four or five things I want us to, I want us to remember from what we've talked about, studied, thought about. In these first seven chapters, one of the things we've discovered is that Jesus is not just a good man, but Jesus is the son of the living God. Let me say that again. Jesus is not just a good man. He is the son of the living God, the God who created everything out of nothing. There are religious groups who will say that Jesus is a good man, but he's not the son of God. Here at Crosspoint, we believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. In your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Let me just read three verses beginning with verse 9. Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he, Jesus, came up out of the waters, immediately he... Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove verse 11 and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. If you have a pencil, underline that phrase. You are my beloved son. And then it says, with you, I am well pleased. Mark chapter 1, verses 9, 10, 11 is is a rare passage in the Gospels. It's one of those places and one of the few places where the Trinity is talked about within the context of those two or three verses. Within those two or three verses, we have God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ the Son. Jesus is not just a good man. He is the living Son of God. The second thing we've discovered as we've worked our way through, number two, is Jesus, because He is the Son of God, He has miraculous powers. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21 and the verses following, Let's just think about these as we work our way through here. John chapter 1 verse 21 and the paragraph that follows. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. Jump down to Mark chapter 1 verse 29. Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. Go down to Mark chapter 1 verse 32. Jesus it says healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out demons. Jump a little farther down to Mark chapter 1 verse 40 and the verses that followed, Jesus healed a leper. Now, one of the interesting things about Mark chapter 1 is the the fact that Mark never tells us that the people who were healed in Mark chapter 1 ever came to faith in Jesus. They may have, or maybe not. It doesn't talk about that in Mark chapter 1. And and so in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is demonstrating for us not just that he has the power to heal, but he's demonstrating the fact that he loves all people. There's a certain kind of, it's called common grace. There are certain things that God gives to everyone, and then there are other things that God gives just to his children. But make no mistake about it, God loves all people. Those that come to him in faith and those that don't, there's still that common grace. Here Jesus is, one one paragraph after the next, healing people, that as far as we know, never came to faith in Jesus, but because of his love and his mercy and his compassion toward people, he loves these people. And so it becomes obvious, even in Mark chapter 1, that Jesus is concerned about And this is just as much for us as the people who were alive in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is concerned about our spiritual needs, but he's also concerned about our physical needs. Turn the page. Go to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus heals a man who's paralyzed. Turn the page. Go to Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Jesus heals a man with, and I don't know what translation you're using, whatever one you've got. It says in Mark chapter 3, verse 1, that Jesus heals a man with a... Either a withered hand or a shriveled hand or a crippled hand, whatever your says. Turn a couple pages, go to Mark chapter 5. Jesus heals a man who's demon possessed. Also in Mark chapter 5, he heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And at the end of that chapter, he heals a young girl. And the list goes on and on and on. Jesus. God in the flesh has compassion over people, and he has compassion and love and kindness and mercy to deal with us both spiritually and physically. The third thing that we've learned in these first seven chapters, we've either learned it or been reminded of it or discovered it, is this Jesus does not do ministry alone, he's not a lone ranger. He works with a team of people around him. Jesus chose 12 men to train and do ministry with him. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We looked at this paragraph last week. Mark chapter 3. Beginning in verse 13, it says this, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The, The model, let's just think about this. The model that Jesus gives us here is that ministry should be a team effort. Not just a bunch of lone rangers doing their own thing. When we come together as a church, we all come together. We're all part of the church. It's not just about the pastor and what he can do. It's about you and what you can do. And how are you involved in this body of Christ? I think this model of doing things together as a team is still the model we need to use today. Everyone who's ever served in a position of leadership should always be training someone else to take their place so that when they leave, for whatever reason, there's not a vacuum created. Just think of all the variety of things. I I, I tried to think of things here at Crosspoint. And I don't know where this falls in your life, but if you're teaching Sunday school or if you're working in the nursery, if you're singing on the worship team, if you're ushering, greeting, making coffee, mowing the lawn, whatever it is you're doing, at the same time that you're doing that, you should be training someone else to do that right along with you so that if you ever step aside or need to take a break, somebody else can step right in and we don't need to create a vacuum. The ministry never suffers. We should be working together as a as a team, using the model that Jesus used. He's not a lone ranger and we shouldn't be lone rangers. Years ago, let me go back in time. Hmm. I tried to think how long ago this was. This has, to be ad, this has to be at least 25 years ago. I read a story and I I've never forgot this story. McDonald's in this story from 25 years ago, and some of you may have worked at McDonald's, some of you may still work at McDonald's. When they hire someone to work in their kitchen, I want you to think about this. They never hire someone and teach them how to fry hamburgers. They never do it. They don't do it that way. Let me say that again. McDonald's never hires cooks to fry hamburgers. They hire them, but they don't teach them to fry hamburgers. You know what they do? Every cook they hire, they teach that person how to teach someone else to fry hamburgers. Think of the difference. They don't teach them how to fry hamburgers. They teach them how to teach somebody else to fry hamburgers. So that if the first guy or woman needs to leave, there's always somebody else that they have taught. And it just keeps passing on. When we teach Sunday school, we should always be teaching someone else how to teach Sunday school. When we mow the lawn. We should always be teaching someone else. If we don't give somebody else a chance, they don't ever have a chance. When we're ushering or greeting or whatever it is we're doing, we need to figure out how to do that and do that well here at Crosspoint. The fourth thing that we've learned in these first chapters is that Jesus has power over what I call natural, everyday things. In Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, Jesus simply spoke the word and the storm became quiet. Now it was one thing to be standing in Sioux Falls yesterday morning when was that Sharon, about 8:15. Wouldn't that have been something to see Jesus just step out onto Marion Road and just calm the storm? Now imagine how much more anxious we'd be if we were out there in the Sea of Galilee in a little 15-foot boat. He just spoke the word. He has power over natural, everyday things. In Mark chapter 6, he fed 20,000 people with a few fish and pieces of bread. In Mark 6, beginning in verse 45, this Jesus walked on water. He is not just a good person. He is the living Son of God. And the fifth thing that we've learned so far is that Jesus, when he taught, he loved to teach in parables. Parables are one of those things that they are easy for us to remember My, oh, my. But they're sometimes very difficult to apply to our life. Mark chapter 4 is a whole chapter on parables. We've got the parable of the sower, the parable of putting a lamp under a basket, and the parable of the mustard seed. And so here's what I've come down to. In these first seven chapters, we realize there is a long list of things that can be found and learned and applied to our life from the first seven chapters of Mark. Let me say that, just within the first seven chapters there's a long list of things that we could learn and apply to our life if we would just take the time to do it. Joshua 1.8 says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night Some people ask me, when's the best time to have devotions, day or night? And the answer is yes. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything, so that you may be careful, Steve, to do everything written in it. Then, the verse says, then after we have meditated on it day and night and day and night and day and night. And after we've been careful to do everything written in it. Then the verse says, then you will be prosperous and successful. And I can just share with you if we've never done this before. Those two words in Joshua 1.8, prosperous and successful, have absolutely nothing to do with money. Nothing. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So let's just take that one little verse, Joshua 1.8, and figure out how are we going to put our arms around the first seven chapters in Mark. If we could spend the rest of our lives, if we could spend the rest of our lives studying Scripture and reading Scripture, and if we only focused on the gospel of Mark, We would never live long enough to apply everything God wants us to learn from the Gospel of Mark. We would never live long enough to apply everything that God is teaching us in the Gospel of Mark. Our goal here at Crosspoint, if there's some confusion about this, let me clarify and clear that up this morning. Our goal is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. That's not our goal. That has never been our purpose Our goal is not to get through the gospel of Mark. Our goal is to get the gospel of Mark through us. That's two different things. So don't get all excited and get in a hurry and think, oh good, in eight weeks Steve will be done with this and we're moving on to something else. I don't know. We might go back to chapter one and go through the whole 16 chapters again. Our goal is to get the gospel of Mark through us and that takes a lifetime to do that. Now I found this note in one of my study Bibles, let me read this, and then we're actually going to go to Mark chapter 8. One of my study Bibles says this about the Gospel of Mark, the ultimate purpose and theme of Mark's Gospel is to present and defend Jesus' universal call to discipleship. Mark returns often to this theme, categorizing the made audience as either followers or opponents of Jesus. Mark presents and supports this call to discipleship by narrating the identity and teaching of Jesus. For Mark... Discipleship is essentially a relationship with Jesus. It's not merely following a code of conduct. Fellowship with Jesus marks the heart of the disciple's life. And this fellowship includes trusting Jesus, confessing him, observing his conduct, following his teaching, and being shaped by being in a right relationship with him. Discipleship also means being prepared to face the kind of rejection that Jesus faced. Let's turn the page. Open your Bibles. Mark chapter 8. It's only 22 minutes after 11. We can go till about 3 o'clock. No, we can't. I'm going to read, and our paragraph for today is the first 10 verses. You can follow along in your Bible. Yes, we do not have that up here, do we? I don't even remember. Remember? In your Bibles, follow along. Mark chapter 8, the first 10 verses. Here's verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Now, we're going to come back to verse 5, but if you have your pencil out, I want you to underline that phrase. How many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that there also should be set, these also should be set before them. Verse 8, And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. William Barclay, Is a Scottish theologian. He was born in 1907, died in 1978, which means he was alive when we walked on the moon 50 years ago yesterday. Okay? 1969. Now, there are people who think that William Barclay was kind of a little bit off-center in some of the comments he made over his lifetime, but then I wonder how many of us would fall into that same category. If if people listen to everything I've ever said in all these years, they'd say, I'm a little bit off-kilter. Wouldn't say that about you, of course, but they might say that about me. There's people who say that about William Barclay because he made an interesting comment a few years ago, which I'm not even going to bring up, but I believe he was a godly man. He loved Jesus with all his heart, and he loved the Bible, and he pastored and taught in seminaries for most of his life. And in one of his commentaries that he wrote on the Gospel of Mark, he makes a statement that I have to tell you, friends, I have never, I have, I have never even thought about this. But I'm going to share that with you this morning. I've never even thought about this stuff. So I wonder what else is in here that I haven't even thought about. But in his commentary on Mark, he points out that this geographic region where these four people are being fed, got that? That's the same basic geographic reason where Jesus healed the demon-possessed man back in Mark chapter 5. Now you remember the story at the end of Mark, that story at the end of the healing of the demon-possessed man. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. I want us just to look at that for a minute. In Mark chapter 5, after Jesus has healed this man, this man follows Jesus down to the water. He wants to get in the boat. He wants to go with Jesus. Do you remember that part of the story? And Jesus says, no, you're going to stay here. Let's pick it up, Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read three verses beginning in 18. Mark 5, 18. As he, this is Jesus, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis... How much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, Barclay asks this question Is it possible? I want you to answer, you need to think this through in your mind. Is it possible that these 4,000 people who are now following Jesus in Mark chapter 8, is it possible? That these people are the result of this demon-possessed man back in Mark chapter 5 telling his family and friends and neighbors about Jesus and all that Jesus had done for him. Is it even possible? And if that's possible, if it is, and I think it is, It says there in the end of Mark chapter 5, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Everyone marveled. And if it is possible that those 4,000 people are the result of this demon-possessed man telling his neighbors and family friends and co-workers and the family that lives across the street, if there are now 4,000 people in that area because this one man was committed to telling others about all that Jesus had done in his life, if that's possible... Do we realize the potential you and I have for impacting the world for Jesus if we would begin to tell our neighbors and our family and our friends and our co-workers how much Jesus has done for us? Do we realize the potential you and I have for advancing the gospel, not just to an individual or to a dozen people, but to hundreds and over the course of our lifetime, to thousands of people. We teach people how to tell other people about Jesus. That at the end of our life, there could be literally thousands of people who now know the gospel message of Jesus Christ, how he came and died and paid the price for our sins and was buried and rose again, and he's still alive today, and someday he's coming back. We we as individuals and we as a church have the potential to reach God thousands upon thousands of people. Now as we bring this to a close, let me remind us of one more thing, a big piece, but one more thing. There are three primary qualities associated with God. Number 1, think of this, he exists everywhere at the same time. Don't get get everything else out of your mind. Just think about that. He exists everywhere else. He exists everywhere at the same time. There is not number 2, there's nothing he cannot do. And number three, there is nothing he does not know. Now we have these big fancy words called omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Let me just give you a verse for each one of these and write it in your notebook. Under this word omnipresent, that means always everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 24. And then this afternoon when you're sitting on the couch wondering what to do, you can underline these in your Bible. Jeremiah 23, 24, it says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. Jesus exists everywhere at the same time. While we're gathered here in the middle of South Dakota in Cross Point Church, there are churches on the other side of the world, who are Christians who are going to bed, who have already been to church, or who are still going to go to church, or who can't even get to church. But God is with us the same way that He's with them. The second one is this word omnipotent. Or if you talk slow, it would be omnipotent. It means Jesus can there is nothing Jesus cannot do. Matthew 29? No, no, no. Matthew 19:26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. The third thing is omniscient. It means God knows everything. He knows what you were thinking about five seconds ago. And he knows what you're going to be doing this afternoon at three o'clock. He already knows that. Our verse is Psalm 147:5. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So now let's, under, let's close up. Since Jesus is God in the flesh... Jesus also knows everything. So I have a question. I want you to think about this. Based on something we read in Mark 8, verse 5. Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Now, if Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is, then why does he ask the disciples how many loaves they have? Doesn't he already know? Why would he ask the question? Of course he knows. But he asked the question so that there will never be any confusion among the disciples as to what is about to happen. There will never be any confusion as to where all that bread comes from. Jesus wanted his disciples to know, and this morning he wants you and I to know, that beyond any shadow of doubt, he has the power and the ability to meet all of our needs. The same Jesus who performed the miracle of providing an abundant supply of bread for people who are hungry is still alive today and he wants us to depend on him and him alone to meet our needs. Jesus took those seven loaves and a few fish, he blessed them, And he gave them to the disciples to distribute. Because in Jesus' hands, there is no such thing as too little. Let me say that again. In Jesus' hands, there's no such thing as too little. Matthew 17, 20 says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. If your car broke down this last week, and you're not sure how you're going to pay the bill, are you trusting in yourself? Or are you trusting God to meet that need? Because God has the power To turn bad news into good news if he chooses to do so. And in God's eyes, there is no such thing as too little. If you went to the doctor last week and the doctor gave you some bad news, are you now trusting the doctor or are you trusting God? Because God has the power to turn bad news into good news if he chooses to do so. In God's eyes, there is no such thing as too little. Our title for Mark chapter 8, the one that we're going to hang on the hook on the wall for Mark chapter 8, after you underline verse 5, that little phrase, our title for Mark chapter 8 is this, there is no such thing as too little. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll ask the ushers to come and take this morning's offering. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world, and that Jesus was God in the flesh. He was much more than just a good person. He was the living Son of God. And we're thankful, Lord, for all the wonderful things he did in those 30-some years when he walked the earth. We're thankful that there really was a guy named Mark who took the time to write some of these things down for us so that 2,000 years later we can read and study and hopefully apply these things to our life. God, I pray for all these men and women, boys and girls here at Crosspoint this morning, for those who are going through some difficult times. I pray that this would become a reality in their life, that they would understand in a real way that in God's hands or Jesus' hands, there's no such thing as too little. Even when we're facing incredible circumstances, our faith needs to remain in you and it needs to remain strong. So God, thank you for all the answers to prayers that we have offered over these years. Thank you for hearing our prayers today and may all of us be encouraged to live a life that makes a difference as we walk with Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, for this offering we're about to take. We thank you for each gift and each giver. In Jesus' name, amen.